Welcome to the Brentwood Academy podcast. We are a co-educational, independent college preparatory school near Nashville, Tennessee. Our mission is to nurture and challenge each whole person, body, mind, and spirit to the glory of God. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the stories, lives, and relationships that make BA such a special place. For more information about BA, visit BrentwoodAcademy.com. Now on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Brentwood Academy podcast. Uh, we thank you for listening today, and uh, we've got the second part of our interview with our headmaster, Kurt Masters, and we're gonna we're gonna dive into to this uh, some of the lessons learned here. Last time we had uh, we got the story of what it was like for for you to grow up mm-hmm. uh, in the mission field. We, can, we we encourage you to go back and listen to that story. Uh, you can you can listen to it uh, on the podcast, and you can also read uh, Kurt's story uh, in his bio on on the Brentwood Academy website. So I encourage you to 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 check out both of those because it's a it's a really amazing story. We're going to catch the uh, the next half of this story, the next part of this story, the follow up. Um, I I'd love for you, uh, Kurt, to tell us um, about 1993. When you got to go back right. for the 25th memorial service, uh, this is this is an incredible uh, turn turn of events here. Right. Well, as we discussed in 1968, when I was in seventh grade, my father was shot and killed traveling between the mission stations, Korapuna and Ninya, and my mom had stayed on the mission field. Uh, we continued at school out at a boarding school there on the coast, uh, and went on through graduation of high school, came back to college, uh, life carried on with my mom on the mission field, her children and dad's children growing up. And and uh, as we look back on that, 25 years after dad was killed, the people there wanted to commemorate the way the gospel came to that valley. And they had built a monument, a pile of rocks, and they wanted to be really clear that the pile of rocks did not signify a worship of the stones. They had mm. a culture, a tradition of having relics, mm. having physical objects that represented spiritual things, and they wanted to be clear that they did not see power in the stones. But it was a marker, as the children of Israel had put up piles of rocks so mm. that their children would ask, why is this pile of rocks here? And they wanted us to see that they had recognized that the gospel had come to them, the people at the outermost parts of the world. Mm. Uh, that the gospel had come to them through uh, my dad hearing the message, my mom hearing the message, and coming to share that message with them. And so we were invited to come back. I had an opportunity to go back to the mission station uh, in Korapun there and to hear some of the testimonies of people who had found the Lord and who had come to know Christ personally and then had begun to share that with others uh, and how the valley had been influenced by the message of the gospel. And so it was a great, great time to be there and, and to see people who uh, had come, as they put it, from darkness to light. You yeah. know, the message of the gospel so powerful uh, in every culture to turn people's direction, mm-hmm. heading toward death and despair to hopefulness and to an opportunity to see an eternal perspective. I was at that gathering. We were sitting in our own, in the home that Dad had built, and the an older gentleman shared some stories about what had gone on that we hadn't been aware of. Uh, the the stories of 
how people had been shot and killed in the valley next door because they were the ones from the Sang Valley, people who had been uh, responsible for dad's death. And the neighboring valley killed them as a neighborly gesture to our uh, Korapun <laughs> Valley wow. and sent body parts over to uh, Korapun uh, by way of saying, hey, we've got your back. <laughs> and as this gentleman was telling the story, he said, uh, when those body parts came, uh, I hadn't had flesh in a long time. But he said, I know Philip would not have wanted us to eat that. And so I didn't even eat one finger. And he was so proud of the fact that he had not even eaten one finger. So when you think about accomplishment <laughs> right. and, and resolutions, you know, he chose uh, to do what he felt was the right thing in spite of the temptation to, yeah, I, to do what they had done before. Everybody's got their temptations, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you mention? Can you talk about uh, you? You mentioned a, a man coming up to you and talking to you. I, I just mm-hmm. think it's a beautiful story. A gentleman who looked much older, but in in that culture, uh, not many lived to be ninety or a hundred, and so he was probably ten years older than I was. Uh, looked like a very old man. He came up to me, and they don't usually touch your face or your head, but he put his hand up on my nose and said, you have the face of your father. Mm. And I was 36 at the time when I went back for that memorial service, and my dad was 36 when he was killed, and Mm. so it was particularly touching. I was as old as my dad had ever been. And now, of course, at 62, in a few days, I look back on 36 as pretty young. (laughs) But at the time, uh, it's just a real serious reflection. And I've thought often about that. Uh, Whose face uh, do we carry forward? And I think there's a great chapel talk in there somewhere. The idea that people see something in us, and it reminds them of someone else. It's not an uncommon occurrence that someone reminds you of someone, but it does sort of lead to the question, are we reminding people of our Father, yeah. our spiritual Father, our Father in Heaven? Uh, and so do people see Christ in us? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything in us that leads them to think about their relationship with God and the opportunity they have for that personal relationship with God that leads to a different kind of relationship with the people around us? Yeah, exactly. I love that and I love hearing that story I've heard that several times I, I love hearing it every single time because because it does remind me of that and and that was uh, that was one of the, the the next place we wanted to go with this was uh, well what lessons do you bring from your upbringing this extraordinary uh, childhood and upbringing into uh, you know your your family life your your career as a, as a teacher and administrator and, uh, and and you had listed out three categories that I think are really uh, they really touch on where I wanted to go. The the adults in your life. What did you learn from the adults, specifically your parents or those mm-hmm. people that you grew up in the mission field with? Uh, the the culture that you were in. What lessons? What what transcends mm-hmm. culture from going to from a, a, a stone age culture as you mentioned mm-hmm. to to now in the twenty first century in a, in in the U S. Mm-hmm. and uh, and God's faithfulness through it all, wherever you are, no matter where you are, God's faithfulness. So talk about the adults in your life. I think you'd wrap all three of those themes together, just woven throughout our experiences. 
looking back on my parents, particularly in their decision to go to the mission field when I was too young to have any say in the matter, Mm -hmm. uh, they felt that God had called them to do something, and then they did it. And Mm -hmm. I think each of us is called, that God has a calling on our lives. Each of us is called to take action, to live out our faith, and to be an ambassador for Christ. And so sometimes the focus is on the mission field or people who go far away. But I think that's a that lesson can be overemphasized. In fact, the lesson really is about obedience and faithfulness. And so I grew up around people who obeyed what they felt God was calling them to do. Mm-hmm. And I think when that sense of calling is is based on an understanding of Scripture and a recognition of the message of the gospel and a determination to carry that message to people who don't have hope without it, uh, when we recognize that we're uniquely positioned to have influence in people's lives for eternity. It changes how we spend our time and our energy, how we spend mm-hmm. our, our uh, relationships, if, if you can say that, mm-hmm. uh, how, how we invest in uh, something that really counts. And mm-hmm. you know the, the idea that if we work for things to pile up here on earth, the, the farmer who stores up and mm-hmm. builds another barn and builds wealth, uh, in the end, that's not going to count for anything. Mm-hmm. What will count for something, and that is the souls of men, the the idea that men and women need to hear the gospel, and the idea that God, the gospel message changes everything. It changes how we find our identity. It changes how we find meaning and purpose. It changes how we view suffering and loss. And so I saw my parents, but many other adults as well, living out their faith in really concrete steps of obedience. Obedience that often involves sacrifice, by the way, being away from family, being in very difficult situations in terms of personal comforts, the risks in terms of you know access to medical facilities or, or availability of creature comforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many different aspects where people were willing to uh, count all of that, measure the cost before going, but then to go ahead and obey. And so I, I look back on my parents' lives and, and the lives of the others around me. By the way, not just those who are out in Indonesia, but people I've known here in the States as well. And and I don't overlook, and I, I think this is true of, of people who do go, they don't discount the significant impact of those who are sacrificing and giving uh, to make it possible that there are some who stay behind and make possible those those journeys mm-hmm. and the gifts there of of the gospel going forward. It wouldn't have happened without people's faithfulness in giving as God called them to right. give. So, right. so that's another piece of it. In terms of the culture, uh, obviously growing up around people who were Stone Age, as we put it, they hadn't mm-hmm. discovered the use of metal. Uh, it wasn't just their technological uh, advances or lack thereof that defined them. It was their view of what was right and how to determine what was right and who determined what was right and wrong, Mm -hmm. how to resolve conflict, how to deal with community, how how people were valued. Uh, Women were considered property. Mm -hmm. And so just different aspects of life where uh, the defining elements, the ideas, beliefs, habits, and convictions uh, as we read in Understanding the Times, that shape the communities and their response to the fact that the world was not like it should be, 
uh, and their efforts to fix it. Uh, those, the complexities of, of those aspects of culture shape our community as well and not just in places where they carry around bows and arrows. And so I recognize that as you step into cross-cultural experiences, even here in the States, uh, that the central issue is that under God's authority, we're all children of his kingdom. And so trying to find unity instead of division, trying to find identity in our relationship with Christ instead of uh, in building our own tribes or our village against your village, uh, to actually believe that our the centerpiece of our identity is found in our relationship with God and a part of his kingdom. And so that, that conviction uh, shapes people who go and share the gospel in places where they aren't necessarily welcome. And I think of the many believers who are in harm's way because they're in environments where that belief is not welcome, and yet their faithfulness uh, really carries a message of its own. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, it, part of it. I was thinking about this. I was, I was kind of having that image again of you know, you said, tribes fighting in your front yard when you, when you mm-hmm. were a kid, and mm-hmm. and that's such a such obviously a vivid image. But um, but thinking of as, as you were saying that what carries out that that kind of conflict. It doesn't have to be bows and arrows, but that mm-hmm. kind of conflict as we see it here in in a, in a nation that is increasingly mm-hmm. divided and, and and unable to to find uh, common ground with mm-hmm. meaningful dialogue. There's mm-hmm. a lot of you know a lot of conflict and fighting and you know us and them and all of that mm-hmm. and um, and I think it I think what you say is really valuable. How do how do we, even in a place that might be increasingly, in places increasingly hostile to the mm-hmm. gospel, even here mm-hmm. or in, in places where you would think it would be mm-hmm. okay, to say, uh, how does how does how does Jesus? What does Jesus bring mm-hmm. to this? How can Jesus? Mm-hmm. How can how can the gospel solve mm-hmm. this problem? You know, we can find common ground mm-hmm. and and work through conflict. Yeah. I think it's really important to note that when you're dealing with people's beliefs and convictions uh, somebody said you can't reason a person out of a position they haven't reasoned themselves into mm. and I don't think yeah. that logic and and persuasion is always the way to go although the Apostle Paul spoke persuasively sure. and people heard the message and responded I think so many times our focus on solving the problem can lead us to emphasize the problem instead of our focus on Christ, which draws people together if they begin to focus on Christ. And so uh, the message of the gospel is so simple and so clear that we're in need of a Savior, that without Christ, we are broken. We're, we are desperately headed in a wrong direction. We're alienated from God, and we're headed toward despair and destruction. That's not an easy message because, you know, sort of be happy is is a more appealing uh, message. But from the heart, we realize that without God, something's missing. And without God, you don't have a purpose that lasts beyond the circumstances. And the reality is the circumstances are often very disappointing. We discover that we're not immortal. We discover that relationships can be harmed. We discover that relationships can be harmed even within our closest circles of friends. And, of course, there's a temptation to draw friends around us 
to counter people who aren't for us. So you get that tribalism and mm-hmm. the, the effort to be us against them. And so it just the sickness, the disease, the, the conflict between nations, there's so many evidences that say the world is not as it should be. Right. And so to offer hope in the middle of that requires pointing towards something beyond those circumstances. And so I think just the clarity of presenting the message of the gospel, Christ died for our sins, Mm -hmm. and you can be right with God through the free gift of salvation. And anything that leaves that out of the message is going to miss the mark. You're not going to see the sorts of uh, developments, of whether it's peace or comfort or uh, resolution for the suffering we face without that. Probably all of us have seen situations where a health issue has come up with a family member or we've lost someone we've loved or we've seen situations where there are reverses financially and the things that we depended on aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And those things are calling our attention to to search for something that does last, that isn't determined by the circumstances. And that's what I wish that we could offer our children and our children's children to the students here – the idea that there's something you can cling to or stand on regardless of the circumstances of your life and that your meaning is not found in those circumstances. Your identity is found in Christ. And so I just see that as a message going forward. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I, love what you, I love what you're saying there. And, you, and you've had the chance to actually live this out. You're not speaking from, you know, you're, you're speaking from experience. And I, and I think that's what's really powerful it's powerful to me. I think it's powerful to our students when they know, you know, like anyone. Once you know their story, you know, mm-hmm. wow, the you know the message has a lot more impact mm-hmm. because I've I've heard where you've been. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little about God's faithfulness. I, I actually wanted to circle back with when you were talking about adults and and their obedience and that you that you saw. My wife and I were listening to this the the first podcast last night and and both of us were just when you got to the part about your mom and your mom being mm-hmm. being three months pregnant and and already having four kids and right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and choosing to stay on in the mission field mm-hmm. uh, both of us were we, you know coming from from our perspective there's this sense of we we tend to we either just shut down a lot of us when we go through hard times we either shut down just we get overwhelmed or we get mad at god hmm. and can you talk a little bit about your mom's mm-hmm. pri- as much as you knew sure. in, as a seventh grader mm-hmm. yeah. what was that like well definitely looking back on that experience mom's response uh, took into account the fact that it was very hard loss there uh she was three months pregnant when dad was was killed and so uh obviously that's a being pregnant is an emotional time anyway but then the the direction of life uh how to evaluate this calling how to assess purpose and and direction now because in those days it was you know dad was the minister right and uh mom was a teacher by training and Yet she and dad had felt that they were called, that we were called to the mission field. And so uh, for her, it was not a simple sort of uh, bright halo moment where uh, 
you know, saintly response. No, it was in the reality of the struggle and the loss and the pain mm-hmm. of uh, dad not being there and uncertainty, wondering how are we going to deal with this and what should we do? What's the right mm-hmm. thing to do uh, for her kids, for herself? Should it be going back to the States or uh, was this something that God had called her to and that calling was still there? And so really uh, at times, you know, so hard and sometimes unable to really pray, not knowing what to say when you pray. Uh, Times when she didn't even uh, opening the Bible just felt like she couldn't even read the Mm. Bible, just the the difficulty of it all. And the beauty of that time it really comes back to the gospel. Mom had begun a scripture memory process a couple of years before where she'd begun memorizing a verse a day. Uh, and the idea was that if you review something 30 days in a row, you'll never forget it. And so she would add a verse a day until she got to 30 and then began to drop one off and add another one. And so she had had uh, hundreds of verses that she had memorized in the couple of years leading up to this. And so God used those verses, the, the Bible uh, reassurances and the, the commitment to be with her when you, when you go through difficult times and the idea that the gospel uh, won't return void, that yeah. seeds that are planted, God's going to grant the increase and, yeah. and that, that God was the protector, uh, father to the fatherless and so on. And so... Uh, just that the power of the scripture that she had memorized god used that in her heart to to encourage her and strengthen her and then to reaffirm that calling and so i don't want to give the impression that mom or other missionaries are some saintly other category right you know they're people who face pain and loss uh, like the rest of us face it wondering what do we do now and where do we turn how can we find meaning how can i find comfort and hope and for mom it was coming back to the things that she had affirmed when dad was there that is that god has a purpose for our lives and that god's called us to share the gospel and that faithfulness is one step at a time it's not something that where we control the future or the circumstances but let me be faithful with what i do know mm-hmm. how can i take a step of obedience right here where i am and so moment by moment step by step uh, that obedience was something that led mom to stay on uh, mm-hmm. until she retired. And so I just see that, again, I don't want to call uh, attention to that as if mom would think of herself as a saint or or that she's somehow got some halo on right. It's those simple steps of obedience, though, where she was faithful uh, to do what God was calling her to do and to continue to carry that message. You made me think of this... I- I was in a conversation with someone over the uh, over the weekend, and they found out where I worked, and and uh, we were just talking about you know th- this community versus other ones, and public versus private, and things mm-hmm. like that. And and I just I indicated you know the, the, these students, many of these students come from wealthy backgrounds. Sure, um, not all of them. Uh, but they're all facing very similar things and mm-hmm. and uh you know similar challenges whether it whether it be something like the loss of a parent or divorce or still trying to make ends meet at at some mm-hmm. level or uh dealing with stress college stress anxiety all of mm-hmm. that stuff peer pressure all of those things identity issues at various levels 
And there still seemed to be kind of a disconnect in our conversation. Yeah, yeah, but their problems are different. You know, mm. the wealthy's problems are different. And certainly, on some level, perhaps they are. But, but I think with our kids, uh, you mentioned you mentioned in our, in our conversation before this about hope, and mm-hmm. uh, and we run into students every day in these hallways that they need hope, mm-hmm. and um, and I just. Uh, uh, how do you see hope here mm-hmm. coming into play here versus mm-hmm. where you grew up? Yeah. I think of that hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That, the reality is that although you hear phrases like the Brentwood bubble, right. things like that, when you're in an affluent community, there can be an impression that uh, you're shielded from the realities of life. And there's no doubt that when you're in financial distress, lots of things emerge as pressure points, and it is very difficult for people uh, who don't have the means to have food or shelter, the, the basics of life, or who are facing financial pressure when they do have lots of things. Uh, but here's the central point, I think, that, that we should remind ourselves again and again. While finding a way to provide for those basic necessities is important. At the heart of it, uh, people with wealth still face the same deep need that people have without wealth. The circumstances of life change, and it it is also almost universal that circumstances of life change for people within their lives as well. And so it's not a single... Uh, category of I'm doing well financially or I'm struggling right. financially. Probably most of us have experienced some pretty wide right. fluctuations in those dimensions. But if our kids find themselves relying on circumstances, financial circumstances, or reaching for circumstances as a basis for hope, in other words, uh, when I'm in most financial need, if I feel like the solution to my problems would be more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the heart of it, that's going to disappoint me because when I have more money, I'm going to find that my deepest needs are not met by right. that money. <laughs> it does meet needs like health care or like uh, food on the table or the opportunities for education. And so there's no doubt that, that finances play a part. But in a community like this, I think our kids, whether they're from a family with lots of wealth right now or a family that has no wealth at all right now, that the solution for meaning and purpose in life is the same for both of them, and it's not how much money you make. And so for us, I've never felt like students who have uh, parents who are earning a lot of money view other students differently who don't have as much. Instead, I worry about this. Will the students whose parents are earning lots of money now define themselves by how much money they can earn? Mm-hmm. It's such a trap to begin to think that our value, that our worth personally is based on how much I can get, how much yeah. stuff I get. Mm-hmm. And I think the message of hope that we offer to people everywhere is that your identity in Christ redefines mm-hmm. that, that sense of value and purpose for yourself. And it turns out that our real value is how much I can give, not how much I can get. Mm -hmm. And that's not in terms of financial giving, usually. It's in terms of what I offer to others in terms of uh, recognizing their value as a person, seeing their eternal worth. 
the ability to forgive, to give forgiveness as I've been forgiven, the ability to point people toward the solution. I think all of us who are in the teaching profession love to offer solutions. We love that aha moment when people say, oh, I get it. I get it. It's so rewarding. And so we're eager to say, here, let me show you. Let me help you. Uh, I want to want you to know how to do this, whether it's coiling a hose the right way or whether it's doing AP calculus. Let me show you. Uh, even with my own kids, they didn't always want me to show them all the stuff that I think was important about that. They just want get help me get the answer. Right. I need to get the answer. What you know? What can you do with that? But but as teachers, we want to offer something that helps other people. And I think that's a calling that God has on all of us. People who are believers in Christ have a treasure. And, you know, as Paul said, it's in earthen vessels, so they know it's not from us. It's not our value that we offer, but we point them towards something that's priceless. And so uh, that's where I see the role we play in terms of uh, different circumstances of life, in terms of different directions and perspectives. Uh, we keep pointing people to something that will last them through the changing uh, situations that they find themselves in, whether they have lots of money or none. Uh, Paul's great line, you know, yeah. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. What a powerful thing to be able to say that circumstances don't define or control me. Well, what does? You know, that's a fair question for all of us. What does define or control us? And if it's something other than an eternal perspective, something that's going to last beyond my lifetime, it's not really uh, a good answer for you. Right. It's going to betray you and disappoint you. Right. Yeah, that's it's an exercise we do in class of listing out all the things we put our hope in and then mm-hmm. crossing off those that can be taken away. And mm-hmm. it's, it's basically everything, that mm-hmm. you know, unless you're going to put your hope in Christ and something mm-hmm. eternal. Well, Kurt, thank you so much uh, for being here today and for following up uh, with us. Mm-hmm. I know you've got a you've got a really busy schedule, and and uh, we're just thankful that we were able to to work this in to to get two of these uh, podcasts up. With there's there's so much rich stuff in here, and I, I'm I'm excited to go back and listen to this one again. But um, to all of you who who uh, who listened to uh, the first one. Uh, Check out the check out the website. Check out uh, Kurt's bio on there. You can catch some some more of this story, and uh, we really we really just want to thank you for listening. And Kurt, thank you so much for being here. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. It's always great to hear the wonderful stories, moments, and insights from members of the BA community. If you have an idea for a podcast episode, we want to hear it. Just visit BrentwoodAcademy.com forward slash podcast to submit your episode idea today.